And we'll read the first 12 verses of 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying, cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Then the hand of the Lord was very heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now that is a text that I preached on two Easter's ago. And I talked about how the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of Yahweh, the God of the universe in that story had been captured by the enemies of God and locked up in the temple of this pagan deity, an enemy of Israel, and compared that to Christ, the, the body of Christ being laid in the tomb, in the domain of his great enemy, death, which he had come to vanquish and how his enemy death, just like the enemy of Dagon, fell down broken before him. And we talked about, of course, Eastery things like how the Roman seal couldn't hold him and the grave <coughs> could not contain him. And how the stone is rolled back and Christ walks out in victory. He is risen. I found lots and lots of parallels. You can find that message on uh, the website, of course. If you listen to it soon, don't judge me if I use one or two of the same jokes then as I do today. <clears throat> but while I don't remember it perfectly, I couldn't preach it to you today. I think it was a pretty good connection between these stories. But there's something else that happens in this text besides just God's presence being brought into the presence of the enemy and the enemy falling over. And that is that when the idol has fallen, it is picked up again. And this is something that some of the Puritans picked up on and compared to our spiritual lives and the struggles that we have as followers of Jesus. And as we come off of Easter Sunday, even though, of course, January 1 is the beginning of the calendar year, and the beginning of Advent this year, November 27, is the beginning of the church year, for many believers, Easter Sunday is something of a spiritual starting point, a time to recommit and, and reinvest and, and renew zeal in following Jesus, because the day itself is infused with the notion of new beginnings. It's the first day of the week that Jesus rose, rather than the last day of the week, the old Sabbath. New life has been there now where, where death has reigned for days. And of course, even our cultural symbols around Easter, whether we're talking about bunnies or eggs, are all symbols that are evocative of a sense of new life. And this is a very ancient emphasis. On Easter Sunday, the first Sunday of Easter, the early church would baptize believers, as we do here at Judson, a symbol of new life and new beginning. It was wonderful to baptize Levi this past Easter. And on Easter Sunday, notorious sinners who had backslidden and repented, having been brought through a season of restoration and penance, would be restored to fellowship with the church on that day. 
And yet, by making Easter this one lone day, this one island of resurrection in the midst of a a sea of other things, we all but guarantee it will be a short-lived beginning, especially for those who come to church maybe only for Easter and then don't come around until Christmas. It becomes one day of spiritual high, a moment of, of wonder and worship, a flash in a pan that will be gone as quickly as it comes. Even those, those who uh, observe Holy Week, who meditate on the meaning of Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Holy Saturday before they come together on Easter Sunday and shout, He is risen. He is risen the whole thing comes and goes quite quickly in a, a blur of activity, doesn't it? We're at different churches. We're, we're coming together for breakfast and quick. We've got an egg hunt. And, and then we're coming together on Easter morning. And everyone's very excited. But then it's over. And I don't know about you, but I am often exhausted at the end of all that. And it feels maybe like a few days, like a Labor Day weekend, that are sort of segmented off by themselves with very little connection to the rest of life. And even for those who observe all of Lent as a time of, of repentance and fasting, Six weeks of self-denial and repentance. It's incredibly important to remember that there are supposed to follow seven weeks of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Seven Sundays of Easter. Celebrating victory over death and sin and Satan. Six weeks of repentance. Seven weeks of celebrating the resurrection, six is the number of man. And yes, our, our repentance is important. It shows that God has been at work in our heart, but we can't accomplish anything through our own merit or our own work or our own efforts. Seven is the number of completion. Only by the complete, the perfect, finished work of Christ can we have any true victory in our lives. And so I'm staying on this theme for all seven Sundays of Easter for the first time ever culminating with the ascension of Christ on the seventh Sunday. Which means we're not even halfway through Easter. He's risen. risen It's Easter. Where is everybody? But back to our text for this week. The background, of course, is God's people having treated the Ark of the Covenant as if it were some kind of a totem, some kind of a, a pagan talisman like a common idol, where if we have it with us, we can win. The background, of course, is that God's people went out to meet the Philistines, and they got just spanked, just beat badly. And then they they came back licking their wounds, saying, what happened? I thought God was on our side. And they decided that they would go in and dust off this Ark of the Covenant and bring it with them. This will get our people all ramped up. Maybe even we'll get God kind of worked up and he'll be there for us and we have to have victory. And yet this ark that they're treating as so common, so, so vulgar, superstitiously, is holy. It's a holy item. And it's in the temple, not just in the holy place, but the holy of holies. So it's the holy of the holy of holies. Holy, holy, holy. Remember last week. And yet it's treated as common, common, common which is one warning we might take away from that text leading up to this one. Of course, in light of Easter, it's fascinating to think of how when the ark, which was a holy, sacred object, but an object all the same, a picture of the holiness of God for the people so that they could grasp it, when the ark was mistreated, God struck people dead and smote his enemies. And yet, Christ 
when he was incarnated and walked amongst us, was not just the presence of God on top of this man. That's Gnosticism. Or filling this man. That's also not the, the proper way to think about Christ. It's actually a, a heresy that was condemned by an early council. Rather, Christ is God's very presence in our midst. Emmanuel, God with us. And yet when he was mistreated, there was no vengeful wrath in the moment. Rather, when he was nailed to the cross, he prayed for those who were doing the crucifying. He died for them. That's jarring. Likewise, it is jarring when God seems to lose there in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It, it, is, it is troubling. And, and, and we don't even like to think about on Good Friday the death of Christ. It's uncomfortable. You look at the disconnect between how many people will gather together for that versus how many will gather together for the resurrection, the big triumph, the big victory. And you can see how in our human nature we want immediate justice. And yet, thank God, he did not bring immediate justice, and yet he suffered on our behalf. There's, there's a, a feeling of this isn't finished, this isn't done, this, is, this isn't right. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Rocky III. Remember Rocky III? It's the one where he fought Mr. T. Come on, guys. Oh, boy. When I was 10 years old and I found out Rocky was fighting Mr. T, I was beside myself. We rented it from Showtime Video, ch chunked it into the VCR. We were watching, and he gets to the big fight. He's fighting him. His name was Clubber Lang, Mr. T. And, and I'm like, I don't even know who I'm rooting for. I love both of these guys like, like family. And we, it gets to the point where Rocky's on the ropes and Mr. T is just wailing on him. And it's obvious Rock, Rock, Rocky's going to lose this fight. And my dad had stood up and was kind of getting closer and closer to the TV. And at one point, he hits stop. He hits eject. And like, out comes the tape. And he looks at it. He says, oh, okay. The movie's like half over. There's a ton more story yet to happen. He'll lose, but later there's going to be some vindication. And he put it back in. And sure enough, that is how it ended with victory uh, for Rocky. And it might feel like that's what's about to happen here. Yes, they've lost. And when they, they go back, they gather the ark together. And you go, oh, they've got their thing now. This is their, their secret weapon. This is their crane technique. This is their over-the-top and so they're going to go out and they're going to wipe the floor with the Philistines. You can feel the 80s rock power ballad starting to swell, but that doesn't happen. They get defeated again. And this time, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. That's the backstory. They bring it back to Ashdod, one of their cities, and they place it in the temple of Dagon. Now, who's Dagon. Just your standard merman god, the chief deity of the Philistines, half fish, half dude, you know, as you do. And they place the ark at the feet of this massive idol of Dagon. And this indicates two things. First, that Dagon has won. He has defeated Yahweh. Now, certainly they didn't have any sense that the ark was simply the seat of God's presence. They would have thought of this as the idol, the god itself of their enemies. And they place it there in a position of submission. Because that's the other thing it is. It's a picture that their God, with this other God at, his, at its feet, is now collecting more and more and more sub-deities to work for him and to fight for the Philistines. It's absurd, of course, but they don't know how absurd it is because they have such a strange, narrow view of what divinity is. 
The ancient Near East, there was thoughts of geographically specific gods and gods who only do one or another thing. And there was room for lots of them and the hierarchy of them. And the hierarchy was subject to change. And now this God of Israel, in their eyes, is subservient to Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines. Because of that, because they don't know how ridiculous it is, they don't see the absurdity of the eternal, infinite power of Jehovah, the God of the universe, taken captive and placed in a pagan temple. They probably think of it along the lines of, yeah, remember Joseph, he had that position of prominence, and yet he was dragged off and brought to Egypt and had to serve in Potiphar's house. And it was humbling, but he did it. Well, they think that that can happen with gods, and certainly they wouldn't think of the God of Israel as any kind of exception. Then again, they couldn't even keep Samson in a temple of Dagon for a few hours without him bringing the whole thing down on their heads, but no one said the Philistines learn easily or quickly. So now the very presence of God is on display in this temple, and it seems like everything is upside down. And that's where the text begins in chapter 5. On the second day after they put it in the temple, the priests of Dagon walk in to start their shift, you know, like you do when you're a priest of Dagon. You got to burn incense to him, you got to sing hymns to him, you got to make blood sacrifices to him, all of that. But they find that, quote, Dagon has fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. It's not a real subtle story, is it? They put the, the ark of God at the feet of this idol, and then the idol falls down before it. Quite literally. William Tyndale, in the first ever English Bible, translated this verse, And when they of Ashdod were up in the morning, behold, Dagon lay groveling upon the earth before the ark of the Lord. So what do they do? Well, you put it back up. you got to quickly write it. It was just a mistake. Who knows what happened? Maybe there was a tremor, an earthquake. Maybe when we put the ark there, we bumped the pedestal and things got a little bit out of whack, off balance. Whatever the case, they pick him up. And they don't think in that moment about how ridiculous it is. They're lifting up their own God, which had fallen. Our God lifts us out of the miry pit, out of the yawning chasm of hell, out of the depths, and places our feet on solid ground and makes us new. They have to pick their God up off the floor. It's like kids who knocked over their mom's favorite vase, and they're like, oh, it didn't break. Good. Quick, put it back before she notices. Then comes day three of the ark's captivity. On the third day, and you can see, of course, why this appealed to me as an Easter Sunday sermon a couple of years ago. Third day, of course, in this effective tomb of paganism as the priests enter in and they see that once again, Dagon is like downward dog, downward god, downward fish, whatever. He's down on his face before the ark once again, but it's way worse. This time the vase is broken. His head and his hands have broken off. And all that is left is his stump. That's not what you want to see if you are a servant and priest of Dagon. Again, not so subtle, but the symbolism is even more powerful and inescapable if you're a pagan in the ancient Near East. And you believe that these gods can change in hierarchy and establish dominance over one another. First, your primary god falls on its face, bowing before a foreign god, one that you thought you'd conquered and added to your collection, that God should be working for you now, and yet here it is, commanding your idol to do a header off the pedestal. But even worse, his head and hands have broken off. Or maybe not broken off. 
I grew up reading the NIV, which says his head and hands lay broken off on the threshold. Only his body remained. But the word we see here is not the normal word for broken. It's the word karat, for cut. Remember learning Hebrew, I always thought of karat, karate chop, chop, cut. Could have thought of someone chopping carats, carrots, I don't know. Anyway, it's the cut word, chopped off. And in the ancient Near East, where there was no Geneva Convention, a normal thing to do if you were a wicked king and you'd captured some powerful prisoners of war was to cut off their hands and their head to humiliate them and symbolically show that you've taken away their strength. You've taken away their ability to plan against you or fight against you or do anything whatsoever. God has here cut off the head and hands of Dagon. And yet they they lie on the threshold. Isn't that strange? Either they rolled really far or it's a very small temple or perhaps they tipped toward the nearest door. Anyway, it looks like Dagon, this stone god, this idol, is trying to, like, get out of there, to get away from the Ark of the Covenant. He falls over, and he's on the way out the door, on the threshold. And, of course, that makes the threshold, in their mind, somehow more holy, more sacred. They thought they'd had Israel's God captive, but it turns out he wasn't trapped in the temple with Dagon. Dagon was trapped in the temple with him and now seems to be trying to get out of there. No idol can stand in the presence of our God. No power, no demon, no principality. Even death itself cannot stand in the presence of our God. He is risen. risen You're doing a good job there. You guys are on top of it. In verses 6 and 7, we read, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon them because unlike their God he still has hands to be heavy at least anthropomorphic hands and he comes and begins to bring some of his wrath upon them for what they have done and it goes on for seven months remember seven the number of completion he completely defeats not only their God but these people themselves this is just one of quite a few foreshadowings of the the crushing of the serpent's head Remember Genesis 3.15, there will come the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and make things right once again. And again and again, we see that foreshadowed leading up to Jesus. We call these types of Christ. This is a, a very, I think, visually stunning version of that because the head literally comes off from a pagan god. We're not going to get into all the fallout and the details, how the Philistines moved the ark around to their five cities, Ashgod, Eshkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza, and every time they did, they brought all sorts of trouble on that city. God brings a plague of rats to each one wherever they have the, uh, the ark of the covenant, and then he smote them, well, in the King James, he smote them with emeroids, which I guess is like cockney hemorrhoids. I don't know, whatever it was, It must have been bad, and it was probably worse than just hemorrhoids because our modern translations say tumor. Smote them with tumors. What a difficulty that is. Jesus, oh, I'm missing a page of my notes. You guys must be blessed somehow. Well, I'll just try, I'll do my best. 
Whatever it was, this was something difficult, and, and, and by God coming in and bringing his, his uh, wrath upon them, but not in a way that destroys them. He shows both his grace and his patience, but also his righteousness. And it's the kind of thing that forces them to send the ark back, just like in Egypt. Remember when the plagues come, we find the Egyptians finally begging them to leave and saying, take our gold, just take my money and get out of here. In the same way, the Philistines essentially say, all right, take your gold-covered box and just, just forget about us. Forget you ever met us. We'll even send a whole bunch of our own gold with it. According to basic etiquette, they take golden rats and golden tumors and pile it on on top of the Ark of the Covenant and send it back. Well, that is the story. The application, I think, for the church today is fairly clear. That the rising Christianity of our day, the thing that you will often hear trumpeted and see on bestseller racks, encourages us to drag the ark, so to speak, the presence of God, the actual God himself of the universe, the Lord who conquered sin and death, into our temples to self in the midst of our sin and place it at the feet of an idol. This may be the most apropos picture of today's popular spirituality that I've ever encountered. A temple filled with little gods, that's what we are. Luther said our hearts are idle factories and they are working overtime, of course. And when we bring God into that temple, there they are. They're all set up. The main God, of course, is me. Either my desire to worship money or sex or live up you know, my life in a way that's blatantly an affront to God's law, which he didn't give us for no reason, but so that we could know how to live a life that would honor him. But today we throw all that out. We say, just as long as you drag the ark into the temple, yeah, sure, place it at your feet because God serves you. He'll be happy just to be involved. He's honored to be scenery in your life. One of two things will happen in this scenario. Either the whole thing's just an act, and that will come out in the end, and the toppling and the curse that we see in these Philistine cities, which was their undoing, will ultimately be your undoing for eternity, that's one. Or two, we will see our idols beginning to fall before him. These things, these things that I feel entitled or empowered to do or think or say or want, and I know from his word and from the spirit convicting me run counter to the very will of God will begin to fall one by one in the presence of almighty God. Reminds me a bit this whole arrangement of the golden calf incident that happened when they said, well, Moses has been gone a long time. We don't know if he's coming back. What's the most logical thing to do? Make an idol out of gold and worship it? Exactly. So they all they chip in. It's a great fundraising campaign. Take all their gold that they've gotten from Egypt. They make this golden calf. They set it up and they begin to worship it. But they don't call it Baal or Dagon, or Molech, or any of the other gods' names from around them, or any of the Egyptian gods' names, or Ra, or Isis, and they don't make up a new name for this calf. No, they say, this is Yahweh, who brought you out of Egypt. That makes it worse. And God didn't say, oh, wow, I mean, you're worshiping a golden calf, but you use my name at least. That's something. What an honor. This makes me think of a, a, I used to listen to Dr. Laura when I worked a really late shift on my lunch. Uh, when I was in seminary, I'd turn on Dr. Laura late, late at night and listen to her give all this kind of finger-waggy advice. 
And I remember this woman called in and said, my husband is always looking at pornography and there's piles of it all over our house and it always made me angry. But this past week, I was moving some of it and I saw that in the midst of it all was a picture of me that I had given him. And I thought, oh, that's just so nice. And Dr. Laura was like, yeah, that is nice. You should tell him that. Tell him that he's being a really great husband. What? No, that makes it so much worse. It's horrifying. And to put God in the midst of all these other gods and all these other idols, just like dragging the Ark of the Covenant into the Temple of Dagon, is an affront to the holy God. This is the God who made uh, all of us in his image and then said, you will worship me and me only. That's command number one. The God who burned up Nadab and Abihu, the priests, for offering strange fire, who punished all of Israel for the affair of the golden calf by having them drink the water in which the ground-up gold had been scattered, the aspect of Easter Sunday that we sometimes lose and all the kind of positivity and the pastel colors is that in that tomb, when Jesus comes out, still in there is the old Zach and the old Cindy and the old Richard and the old Ryan and the old Dave. That's, that's dead now. That's toppled now. To continue to live in the flesh, well, we tell ourselves, well, in my heart, I'm, I'm still following him. To honor him with our lips when our hearts are far from him, as Isaiah said, and Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, is the very thing Jesus was talking about in Revelation 3, when he talked about being cold or hot. He says, you are neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. And he could not take it. I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. He doesn't say, well, you're not exactly on fire for me, but at least you're not ice cold. So I'll give you that. Lukewarm, there's room for improvement. I give you a C. No, he says, I would rather you were hot or cold. Both of them are preferable to lukewarm. This is, this is the, the core of following Jesus. And, and if you're going to worship idols, do it. Just, just do it. Just worship the idols. If you're going to truly worship Jesus, meaning offering your body as a living sacrifice, which Scripture says in Romans is our spiritual or logical act of worship, it means submitting yourself and your will and your very life to him to lose your life for his sake in order to find it, then do that. Choose one or the other, hot or cold. Both are preferable in our Savior's eyes to lukewarm. The same Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He will either love one and hate the other or love the other and despise the first. And, and so one of these ark or dagon is going to fall and that will happen soon. There can't be a stalemate for very long. So that first morning, it looked like maybe Yahweh was bowing down to Dagon. But by the end of this thing, quite literally, Dagon was bowing down, broken, before the God of the universe. Powerless, trying his hardest as a stone guy with no movable limbs to escape. And think about the, the finality of an act like this, right? Down it comes. It, it wouldn't happen in stages. It would happen all at once. Think about gravity. It's going to fall as soon as it starts to move and it hits a certain point, that's it. One of the most old man things I've been doing lately, and I've never told anyone this, is I'll go on YouTube and I'll, I'll watch videos of people felling big trees. I don't know. I find it cathartic. I find it weirdly satisfying. I'm into like Michigan lumber history and stuff. I, I don't have any defense for it. But I'll tell you this. When they get to the point when that tree is about to go down and you hear crack, 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 everyone gets out of there because there is no turning back at that point. It is, it is falling. Dagon can't half fall. 
When he starts to tip, he's coming down. And, and that is whatever idol we have on the throne of our heart, whether self-righteousness or rage or the sins of the tongue in all their different forms, whether cursing and blaspheming and profaning the name of God or boasting or gossiping, whether it's drunkenness or fornication, it will fall. When Jesus struck Saul on the road to Damascus, he didn't knock him halfway to the ground. That doesn't make any sense. In the Old Testament, there is an awful lot of knocking down of false gods and idols. We think about the high places in Israel and how all of the wicked kings are marked by not knocking down the high places and the good kings are marked by knocking them down. Primary amongst them, Dan and Bethel, these northern cities, where people came, people who said, I belong to Yahweh, yes, I follow him, would go and worship false gods. And we have high places in our hearts where idols are enshrined, and where we think we can worship other gods even though we belong to the God of the Scriptures, the God of creation, the God who saves us. You know what they worshipped at Dan and Bethel, those two high-placed cities? Does anyone remember? Hmm? Golden calves. Even after the big golden calf fiasco, they go back to that. How silly. How exactly what we tend to do in the flesh as we try to follow Jesus, especially if we try to do it in our own strength. So yes, it came down completely, but this is where it gets complicated. Because they came in and they set the idol back up. And that's where we are now. This is where one week of Easter celebration falls short. We talk about Jesus says it is finished and he did, and it is. The work to give you your salvation, to accomplish for you salvation, is finished on the cross. And we talk on, good, uh, on, on Easter morning about how he came out definitively from the tomb and defeated death. Yes, he did. These are truths that we hold on to for dear life with all our might. But in our spiritual lives, it's not that definitive. It's not that, okay, it's done, and all my sin is behind me, and it's nothing but beautiful meadows and forests ahead. There's an old song we used to sing in uh, Sunday school, Sunday school opening. We had this thing in Essexville Baptist, Sunday school opening. We sang all these old songs and this lady played the piano. And we said, since Jesus came into my heart, I'm in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. <laughs> no, you're not. And no, I'm not. We're not happy all the time. We're not successful all the time in following Jesus. And even if we were, it sometimes hurts. Even for the disciples, in those days after that first Easter Sunday, there was doubt and fear and backsliding. All right, I'm going to go fishing again. And leave, I'm just going to go back to what I know. There was even unbelief, but Jesus keeps on pursuing them. Well, we see that's pictured here in what happens next. Yes, this idol's been knocked down off the pedestal. Yes, these guys go in, and it's their job to pick him up, so they pick him up, put him back on the perch, and they all say, all right, this never happened, right? Right? They're not ashamed to worship this God that has been dethroned in his own house because they've kind of put all their eggs in that one basket. And this is the reality of the Christian life. Our great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, conspire. These are the wiles that Paul talks about to come back into the temple. We are the temple, according to the New Testament, to come back in and put the idol back on its stand. And make the idol once again prominent instead of Jesus who should be on the throne of our hearts. This happens with new converts after a honeymoon period often. They'll feel like, all right, finally I got some traction. I've put the old besetting sin behind me. And I think that I'm kind of above it now. And I'm not going to fall into that. 
But they don't recognize that the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. That putting our sin nature to death is our job every single day. And that when our lusts seem the most quiet, to quote John Owen, is when we should be most vigilant. Anyone who has had toddlers can tell you that, right? You hear some noise over here. You hear some, even even like some yelling. You're like, all right, let me go check it out. But you hear silence. You hear nothing. Spidey sense, right? When they seem most quiet is when we need to, again, in John Owen's words, strive to put new stripes and new blows upon them daily. But this can happen with mature believers, too. Perhaps the same old besetting sin comes back after years, or perhaps some new weakness. Whatever the case, believers can find themselves back in the temple with the toppled idol back on the pedestal, wondering, how did this happen? Something I'd never thought about before this week as I read this text. It would have been a big job to pick that idol back up. This isn't little. This isn't like when Indiana Jones of Ark of the Covenant fame goes into that Mayan temple because he's also an expert in that culture and he sees that tiny little idol, that little gold guy, and he's like, puts it in the... No, no, no. This is the chief god of the Philistines and this is his main tabernacle. This is where he dwells. It would be enormous. This would take a bunch of guys, a bunch of muscle power. People are, are grunting and heaving and pushing it back up. This is a, a big deal, and yet, when God knocks it down the second time, it takes no effort at all. He's not throwing his back out. He's not even straining the pinky finger of his mighty hand. Be comforted by that. By the fact that even after it's picked up, this idol is dethroned again, and the second time, it's even more violent and, and destructive and definitive. The hand of Christ, which was pierced for our iniquities, reaches down and once again knocks the idol off its pedestal with righteous judgment. What the Philistines wanted was an alliance between their God, Dagon, and the Ark of the Covenant and the God that it represents. But no such alliance can ever exist. The world will not accept this. The world is offended by this idea. They will rage and froth when we suggest that the God of heaven and earth is a jealous God, although he describes himself as such several times in Scripture. They will say, how dare you suggest that your God won't play nice with mine? How dare you suggest that your God condemns false deities, which St. Paul tells us are demons, or, or that your God condemns our atomistic, materialistic view of the world? in which we have no rock to stand on whatsoever and are blown every which way by every whim and fancy, which is happening now before our very eyes, where something that everyone believed 10 years ago is the absolute height of abhorrent, outdated bigotry today. That's what happens when you don't have a rock to stand on. How dare you suggest that your God will not play nice with my desire to gratify the flesh, to serve God and mammon, or Jehovah and Eros, or Jesus and myself? These are the questions. That God is my co-pilot bumper sticker may have peaked in the 70s and faded away, but the concept has never been more popular than it is today among self-professed Christians. He is my backup. He's my right-hand man. He's my wingman. He's there for me. Not that I'm here for him. He's there for me. I exist for him, but he's there for me. And I want you to notice that even after the head and the hands were broken off this weird merman monstrosity, the stump remained. And I think that's an important biblical truth. 
In fact, the, the Hebrew is a little bit confusing. It says, only the Dagon remained. Essentially saying only the fish part is still there. Like the, the tail and stuff. And that part remains, and it never says in the scripture ever that it was removed. And the stump of our Dagon is left behind as well. I wish there was a way to pry it out of us and be rid of it for good in this life. If I knew how to do it, I'd tell you how to do it. I'd do it myself. But that's not what God has ordained. Sanctification means one stale at a time, prying, chiseling that thing out of place. And when he suddenly starts flipping around like a fish in the bottom of a rowboat, you kill him again by the power of God. Knowing that one day, when this life is over, we will be purged of all the remnants of sin and idolatry and wickedness that remain in us. This is what Paul was thinking of when he said, Oh, wretched man, I am. Oh, wretched man, who will save me from this body of death? And he said, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. And this truth, too, the culture at large rejects because it is offensive. If I suggest there's anything within me at all that I shouldn't be proud of and celebrate and trumpet to the mountaintops, if there's anything in me that I should put to death, that itself is something within me that is toxic. Yes, it's paradoxical, but the world doesn't care. And they look at Christians and see that even after years of following Jesus or decades of following Jesus, we are still in the process of putting to death. And they say, just accept yourself as you are, as your God made you, right? Just find some peace with that. But take heart, because he is risen. risen Take heart, because while we are people of unclean lips, like Isaiah said in our text last week, he will purify us. Like Peter, we fall at his feet and say, away from me, I'm a sinful man. But he says, I know, I know the fish God is still on your throne, but I'm going to knock it down, and I'm going to make instead a fisher of men out of you. In the book of Judges, there's a story of Gideon or Jerubbaal, who is called by God to rise up in the midst of idolatry. His father has an altar to Baal, and he's told to go tear down the altar, chop down the Asherah pole, both of these are idolatrous, and then to use that pile of wood as the kindling for a fire upon which to offer a bullock as a sacrifice to God. Oh, the symbolism in that also comes up and kind of whacks you in the face. To knock down the idol, set it on fire, and out of that to worship God. When we turn inward, not just during Lent, but certainly during Eastertide as well, and say, God, you've given us the victory through Jesus Christ, and we take the old dagon within, the old stump, and we begin to break it apart, that is an act of worship. When our fire begins to die down, when we find ourselves in danger of being lukewarm, one thing we need to do, as it says in the previous chapter in Revelation, is to rediscover our first love. To, to pray that we will again be filled with the zeal and love of our Savior, but also pray for fresh hate. Hatred of your sin. That we would despise the stump of Dagon still in our souls. Not become kind of at home with it. That we wouldn't get pragmatic and say, well, sometimes spiritual diplomacy is necessary. Sometimes a tenuous truce, maybe even an alliance, is the way to go. Nowhere does it say that the stump of Dagon was removed from the Philistine temple, but it will be removed from your heart in the end. And that is a great comfort for the Christian struggling again for the tenth time with that same old 
sin. I spoke on Easter Sunday about Christ as the first fruits and how his resurrection was a promise that you and I will all be resurrected on the last day. And when we think about the hope wrapped up in that promise, we think about Revelation chapter 7 and how in that place we will hunger no more and neither thirst anymore and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more sickness or sorrow or any of that. But also we should look forward to this. You will no longer have an enemy within you to contend with. You will no longer have to be watchful and vigilant like we do now. You will never again have to put your head on your pillow at night, racked with regret over the sin you committed today, asking yourself, how did I end up bowing at the foot of that fish god again? That will be the ultimate release. We're almost home. So press on toward the blessed shore. Praise the Lord. We're almost home, and we will get there because Jesus is risen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that on this third week of Easter, we can begin to talk about how in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the conquering of our great enemy, we now can conquer as well. In fact, we read in Scripture that we are more than conquerors. We pray that we would be about that work, that we would see within us the stump of the old idol that has been toppled and displaced by Jesus, and that the old appetites and desires would be pushed out by new, holy appetites and affections, that we would be seeking after you and your name and your face and not after ourselves, that we would want to be gratified in your word and not in our flesh, that we would not be content to get most of that old idol out, that, Lord, we would want to root out every last scale of that fish God in our hearts. And Lord, we thank you that by the power of Christ we can, and that in the end, whatever, whatever remains will be burned away by your love and your holiness as we enter into your presence. And in your name we pray, amen.